Hello, people of the way. We're going to continue our study through the book of Acts. And if you have your Bible, turn to Acts chapter 26. Remember I said a couple weeks ago how much of these uh, latter chapters of the book of Acts reads much like a, a, a legal case, legal dissertation, a legal briefing, you know, pa- painting a picture of scenario statements. And that's what we see here. This is kind of the last chapter where we see that. And then it gets into uh, the, the, the last several chapters, gets into more of uh, the happenings, what, what, what's happening with Paul. Um, and, and so it's so beautiful to see this. Because you not only see how the Lord is comforting Paul, but you see the spirit of the Lord upon Paul just on his countenance, his witness. Uh, It's just beautiful to witness. And we're going to study that hardcore here in chapter 26. If you remember where we left off last week, uh, what happened is, you know, in verse in chapter uh, uh, 25, chapter 25, verse uh, 23, Paul is brought into the council. This this this. Uh, 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 this uh, hall of justice, so to speak. Remember, there was the pageantry, the entrance of Agrippa and uh, Bernice, and in their incestuous relationship, their incestuous marriage. You look at the Herodian family, it's like, wow, wickedness abounds. Where is the righteous? And you see all these things, how the Herodian family came against Christians. You know, with uh, Jesus Christ, our Lord himself, you know, and then, you know, in, uh, 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 with Peter, we studied that a couple chapters before. And now we see with Paul this, this impact of the Herodian family. And so you see Paul is brought in. And in verse 24 of chapter 25, Festus, the governor, he spoke to uh, Paul or he spoke to above before the council. And he says, yeah, uh, uh, King Agrippa and all the men who are present with us, you see this man? And then he pointing at Paul, you see this guy right here? All these people, pomp and circumstance, all decked out to the nines, and here Paul is in his chains. One man. One man. And I love it so much. I mean, it's sad in a carnal sense. It's sad because it's like, wow, you know, they're coming against my brother. But then beautiful in another sense because, wow, you know, like, you know, let God be true in every man a liar. Just like Paul says to the churches and to us today, let God be true in every man a liar. So now let's look at chapter 26, verse 1. And remember this, you know, in this, uh, Paul is in front of Festus, Agrippa, Bernice, and these prominent men, the fat cats of the city, the heavy hitters of the city. And here in verse 1 of chapter 26, Then Agrippa said to Paul, You are permitted to speak for yourself. So Paul stretched out his hand and answered for himself. And here is the beginning quote, verse 2. I think myself happy, King Agrippa. You know, you're going to see something very, very interesting about Paul's demeanor. His demeanor, his self-control, his living peaceably, as much as depends on him, living peaceably. You're going to see that. And what are the gifts of the Holy Spirit? When, you know, you hear me mention this quite a bit, but in, in, in uh, Galatians 5, in verse 22, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such, there is no law. 
And you see that exemplified here in Paul. He's not a hypocrite. You know, he's not a violent guy, you know, behind the scenes. And now he's just a nice guy before the public. No, he has self-control. You see the fruit of the Spirit in his life. You see the fruit of his Spirit in his speech. You see in the work of his hands, in the path of his feet, the steps of his feet. It's like this, remember, you, you know, you, you hear me mention, in our, you know, I did it more in, in our study in Exodus, a little bit in Matthew. But it's like this holy bubble. <laughs> you know, have you ever had friends, you know, brothers and sisters in Christ, where it's like they have this holy bubble and you love it? You know, and it's Christ in them, but you're just like, wow, like, I want to be next to this guy. I want to be next to this gal because it's like, I love their bubble. And you read the passages of scripture. It's like, wow, I want to be next to Peter in his bubble. I want to be with Jude in his bubble. I want to be with Lydia in her bubble. All these people were surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. You know, it's righteous living. And so Paul, he says in verse 2, Acts 26, he says, I think myself happy, King Agrippa, because today I shall answer for myself before you. Remember, Felix, Governor Felix, you know, he uh, 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 he kind of, uh, the, his successor was Festus in chapter 24, verse 27, says after two years, Portius Festus succeeded Felix. And Felix, wanting to do the Jews a favor, left Paul bound. So Paul has been in prison for at least two years. Quite a long period of time. And today is the day, right here, right now, is the day where Paul is like, wow, you know, now I get to speak again. All these past opportunities he had to speak, and here he is. Kind of like in a mock trial, so to speak. Because remember, we studied Festus last week. And how he kind of made a, mo a mockery. He didn't reveal what, what his, you know, the previous counsel that he had with the religious leaders. He's kind of, you know, showboating. And Paul's like, man, I'm happy. King Agrippa, because today I shall answer for myself before you concerning all the things of which I'm accused by the Jews, especially because you are an expert in all customs, in all customs and questions which, which have to do with the Jews. Remember, Herod's jurisdiction, which included Jerusalem, the realms of Judea, that was the jurisdiction of the Herodian family. And, you know, it changed in size over the, you know, between, you know, Herod the Great and, you know, all the Herods after him. But there were some minor changes. But for the most part, when you look at the map and you look historically the from the succession of the Her Herodian family, it kind of stayed in relative uh, tact. It was intact, you know, up until the fall of Rome or uh, the, not the fall of Rome, the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD. Major, major political disputes between the Jews and the Romans and you know because it was in Herod's area Judea it was you know he was kind of like the uh the intermediary intermediary between Rome and the Jewish people and don't forget that this you know Paul is saying you know you're an expert in these customs and questions because the Jews live in Jerusalem in your jurisdiction you know these you know these things he says therefore i beg you to hear me patiently and it's so beautiful because, you know, it's like, you know, he's going to give a little long dissertation. And he continues in verse 4. My manner of life, 
from my youth, which was spent from the beginning among my own nation at Jerusalem, all the Jews know. Nothing's a secret. That's what's such a trip about this whole thing. Paul's life wasn't a secret. Remember, he was a Pharisee of Pharisees. You know, a student of Gamaliel, a very, very well-respected teacher of the law. And Paul is saying, look, they know. They know my pedigree. They know where I came from. I wasn't hiding in the shadows. It wasn't a secret. In verse 5, look what happens. He says, they knew me from the first if they were willing to testify that according to the strict, strictest sect of our religion, I lived a Pharisee. You know, remember, they were willing to testify and accuse Paul, the, the religious leaders of, you know, the Jews. They were willing to testify and accuse Paul, and they did. But they didn't give an account of Paul's past as a Pharisee as one of them emanating from them, of the Pharisees. Remember, there were the Sadducees and the Pharisees. But of the Pharisees, they didn't want to admit. Oh, yeah, you know, they'll go ahead and accuse, you know, if it's about this, if it's about that, and specifically this and that. But, oh, no, we can't mention that he came from us. We can't mention that this guy came from the Pharisees. And, you know, where are his accusers now? No, he's giving his account. But where are his accusers? And so look what happens here in verse 6. And now I stand and am judged for the hope of the promise. Very interesting. Remember in uh, Titus chapter 2, verse 13, there's the blessed hope of the uh, and glorious appearing of Jesus. You're going to see Paul mentioned in his writings, as you see here, his statement before the uh, this body of people, how he speaks about hope, hope of the promises. Here, like in verse 6, here, uh, Paul talked to, he writes a letter to young pastor Titus about a blessed hope and the glorious appearing of Jesus Christ. That's Titus chapter 2, verse 13. It begs the question, you mean hope in a promise? What do you mean? How is it possible to have hope in a promise? Well, among men, they'll fail. When the promise is of the Lord, take it to the bank. Not even, that doesn't even do it justice. It's a sure thing. As surely as your feet are planted on this earth, it's a sure thing. Even more sure than that. Hope in a promise? Yes. Who's giving you the promise? Oh, this guy gave me a promise. Well, you know what? He's not going to pay your 20 bucks. Just say it's gone. This lady gave me a promise. You know what? She's not going to show up. This other guy gave me a promise. Eh, say goodbye to your 100 bucks. You talk to kids. You know, they, they look forward to certain events with their dads. And the dad's like, yeah, son, I'll be there. Dad's not there. Yeah, baby girl, I'll be there. Dad's not there. You know, and it's like, that's the failure of man. You know, yeah, you can have hope in the promise of a man and the promise of a woman, but it only goes so far. It's limited because they're carnal. But what about Jesus Christ when he gives us promises? When he gives us promises from his word, 
Man, take it to the bank. Not even the bank. Take it to Zion. You know, that's where he's taking you. And it's so beautiful because, you know, uh, you see this hope of the promises. And he's like, why, why, are, you, why are you equating that to a rapture reference? When, when Paul writes to Titus in chapter 2, verse 13, the blessed hope and glorious appearing. Well, you know, he also looks at, if you look at verse 23, he also writes about the resurrection. Jesus Christ being the first fruits of the resurrection. You know what that means? There's more. You know, you look at a wine field. And, at the, you know, you, you look at the wine field and, you know, the, the grapes or, you know, whatever it is. You know, you see the wine. I don't know what they're called. Like the, you see the big old field and it's just like the vines and you have the grapes. Well, if you take one grape and you throw it up in the air, you know, pretend it doesn't come down, but you throw it up in the air. And it's ascending up in the air. Of all the multitudes of grapes, and you just do that to one, it doesn't come down. You just throw it up and it ascends. Well, that's the first fruits. And there's going to be more. More grapes. There's a huge, like, there's in a big field, all the grapes, they're going to be thrown up in the air. Never to come down, just thrown up in the air. So when you think about the rapture of the church, remember, you just equate it to the resurrection of the church. And Jesus Christ was the first fruits. He was like that first grape being thrown up in the air. And there's a whole bunch more grapes. And the living will by no means precede the dead. There's more grapes. So look at verse 6 here. Remember, Paul is giving his dissertation, his defense before this body of people. He says, and now I stand, verse 6, and now I stand, and now I stand and am judged for the hope of the promises of the promise made by God to our fathers. To this promise, our twelve tribes earnestly serving God night and day hope to attain. For this hope's sake, King Agrippa, I am accused by the Jews. Paul is telling Agrippa, this is my crime. This is my crime. Those things that I'm accused of, Fake news. Those things that the Jews said I did, it's a hoax. Fake news. You know what my real crime is, King Agrippa? Hope in Jesus Christ. Hope in Jesus Christ. That's my crime. And imagine all the people just listening to Paul. You know, they're all decked out in the nines. And here this guy comes out in chains. I don't know the last time when Paul had a bath. I don't know what he, you know, his clothing, the condition of his clothing if he had a change of clothes, remember, Governor Felix allowed visitors. So maybe the brethren came and, you know, gave him a new change of clothes. I don't know. But I bet, you know, I know for sure it wasn't, you know, to the nines, he wasn't decked out like the other people. And here he is in his chains. This is my crime, King Agrippa. This is what he says here in verse 8. Why should it be why should it be thought incredible by you that God raises the dead? Or why should it be thought as unbelievable by you? Remember, he's speaking to Agrippa, the who has jurisdiction over Judea of where Jerusalem is. Remember, the Herods and the Jews had uh, interactions. The Herodian family had interactions with the Jews. And, you know, in one sense, you could say they had certain connections, political connections. 
You look at the elite class today, the so-called elite class today. And you look at the connections that the you know heavy hitter politicians have with the heavy hitter business people. The heavy hitter community leaders. A lot of corruption, but they're connections nonetheless. And Paul is posing this question. You know, you, I know you have all these connections with the religious leaders. I know you've heard about the resurrection in accordance with the Pharisees. And I myself was a Pharisee. A Pharisee of Pharisees. So King Agrippa, why is it so unbelievable that God raises the dead? And then Paul starts to give his testimony. In verse 9, you know, he gives his a little historical account that, you know, who he who he was, and it wasn't you know not, not a secret. And now he gives a little testimony here in verse 9. Indeed, I myself thought I must do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. You know, he's acknowledging, Paul is acknowledging that he was an enemy of Jesus Christ. Jesus was my enemy, King Agrippa. I myself, he says, I myself thought I must do many things contrary against the name of Jesus of Nazareth. He was my enemy, King Agrippa, or so I thought. You know, that's what's so interesting about an encounter with Jesus Christ. Many, many, many people hate Jesus until they don't, you know. That sounds like such a cheesy statement, but I mean it in a deeper sense. You know, have you ever been a hater of Jesus before you knew him? You hated Christians. You hated everything about what you thought of Christianity. You tried to, you know, tease Christians, make them slip. Prove them to be wrong. Make them stumble. And you just hated everything about it. Until you didn't. Why? Because the Lord made himself known to you. And you responded. You fell on your knees. And you repented. And you believed. That's why I say, you know, many people hate Jesus. Until they don't. You know, as wickedness abounds, never forget that grace abounds much more. We have to be wise. But then at the same time, you know, not we're still fishermen. Go and make disciples is what the Lord says. Go and make disciples. Not go and make converts. It's not a cheesy sales pitch. Go and make disciples. Converts? No, it's not about converts. If it's about convert converts, you know, you could look at a numbers game. But no. It's about disciples. Go and make disciples. And so look what happens here in verse 10. This I also did in Jerusalem. And many of the saints I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priests. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. So the religious leaders, they capture all these Christians. And then they, you know, hey, in accordance with the law, do these people live or die? And Paul says, I cast my vote against them. I say, kill them. Christians, people of the way. 
You know, it blows me away so much when we start to think about who Paul was before Christ. We studied this a little bit in passages before, but let's, as to stir the pot a little bit, let's go to uh, chapter 22, just one little verse. Chapter 22, verse 4, this is what Brother Paul says. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering into prisons both men and women. Galatians 1.13, he says his goal was to destroy the church. He says here, I persecuted this way to the death. And here in chapter 26, when he's giving his account, he says that, you know what, when they were, when, when they were put to the death, when they were put to death, my vote was against them. I didn't cast my vote for them to live. I didn't cast my vote for mercy, for grace, for love. No, I cast my vote to kill them. Christians. You know, it just blows me away so much. And put yourself in Agrippa's shoes for a moment. How he has these connections with the Jews. He knows certainly well about the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He knows certainly well about the resurrection. These are people that he governs in a political sense. I mean, what governor isn't well aware of the happenings of his or her state? What mayor isn't well aware of the happenings of his or her city? And that's who Agrippa is. Like, uh, you know, a little governor over this certain province of which contains Judea. He certainly knows the Jews. He certainly knows the Pharisees, the Sadducees. And I specifically mention the Pharisees because they believe in the resurrection. He certainly heard of Jesus. He certainly heard of the way. He knows Peter. He knows Paul. He knows Joanna. You say, well, that's a little left field. Where'd Joanna come from? Well, Luke 8, verse 3. Remember we studied these beautiful women, these hero women. All these people. Maybe he didn't know Joanna, but you see in this, what's happening around the Herods, there are certainly Christians around. Certainly Christians around, which means what? People who are praying. You're going to see when Paul, when the book of Acts, we're going to study this more hardcore. But you're going to see how Paul, when he says, you know, to pray for those over you, pray for your leaders, submit to government and pray for them. You're just saying, you know, Paul himself, he's not a hypocrite. <clears throat> Where do you see him, you know, in his anger rising up here before his religion, before these leaders? Where does he stand up and, you know, slam his foot on the ground, slam his fist on the ground? I am a Roman citizen. How dare you do this to me? I have my rights. No, you don't see that at all. In fact, you know, he had favor from Felix. Of course, from the Lord. But he had favor from Felix. Remember in chapter 24, how we study how the command was given, you know, for Paul to be kept in jail. But then at the same time, chapter 24, verse 23, that he was able to have liberty 
and then he was able to have his friends visit him and provide for him? You know, what kind of jail sentence is that? Where you're sentenced to jail, but you still have, you know, can go out and, you know, in liberty. You can have visitors come and bring you stuff. Now you see, because of his countenance, and he's not a hypocrite. Because of his self-control and the fruit of the Spirit in his life, you start to see how it creates favor with those around him. How beautiful the Lord teaches us all these things. I mean, when you look at the Bible as just a rule book, I mean, there are rules. But rules for my benefit, rules for your benefit, for your advantage. Me personally, I mean, you could call them rules, but I don't really see them as rules. I see it as loving instruction. I meant, for example, I meant a parent talking to his or her daughter, talking to his or her son. You know, baby girl, I don't want you to put your finger in the socket. You know, if the baby girl's too young, you say, hey, don't put your finger in the socket. You do that and you get spanking. But as the kid gets older, they learn, I'm not going to put my finger in the socket because mama says no, because papa says no. Then they get older, you tell them, look, if you put your finger in the socket, you're going to get electrocuted. You're going to die. Or, you know, maybe not die, but, you know, depending on the conditions, depending on the scenario, you know, quite possibly. But you're going to get jolted and, you know, it's going to hurt. I don't want that to happen to you. Because I love you. And that's why I tell you, you know, not to do this. That's why I tell you not to do that. It's not to hurt you. It's to help you. And once you understand the Bible, rather than being rules, but you see it as instructions for guidance, instructions for living, guidance for living, but ultimately, you know, like we don't belong here. This world is not for us, the Christian. Once you understand that and these parameters that the Lord has us in this environment, you fall deeper and deeper and deeper in love with Him because of the instruction that He gives, among other things. And that's what's so beautiful about not just what's happening here with Paul and how the Lord is using him, but in his letters to the churches, in his letters to pastors. And here you have this encounter that uh, uh, Agrippa is having this encounter with Paul. And and it, it's almost like a divine appointment. And I'll explain that more as we get as we read further on. But it's almost like a divine appointment. You see a little bit of favorable treatment of Agrippa onto Paul. And you see, like, wow, is this a divine appointment? There's an interesting dichotomy that starts to emerge here. How someone's divine appointment with the Lord will oftentimes come at your expense. And I say that because what we read here, and not just what we read here, but you're going to see that and we've seen it in previous chapters. And we're going to see it in future chapters, Old Testament and New Testament. But oftentimes a person's divine appointment will come at your cost. Look at this divine appointment with Agrippa. And look at what it came, the cost it came to Paul. 
two years in jail. It was, you know, light duty jail, you know, limited security prison. <laughs> Little jail system where, you know, he had liberty. But it came at a cost to Paul. And you're going to find that, you know, like, you know, say you have a terrible day. You wake up in the morning, you have like two hours of sleep and you got a long day ahead of you and you were stressing about, about stressing out about it the night before. It prevented you sleep. Your sleep, maybe you had to prepare for something, a speech, maybe you had to prepare for a meeting or whatever. And you have like two hours of sleep, maybe an hour and a half of sleep. And you got a long day ahead. You got to, you know, drive over here, drive over there, travel here, travel there, you know, do your deal, do whatever. And it's just a terrible, terrible day. You got no sleep. You're tanked on coffee. You're fidgety, but you're walking. And then all of a sudden you see like this lady crying on a park bench. And you wake up and it's like, wow, this is a terrible day. And in the middle of the day, you see this lady crying on a park bench. You look at your watch. It's like, okay, I got... I can spare 20 minutes. And you approach this lady. You sit down. And you start talking. Engaging in a conversation. You don't know her. She doesn't know you. But you start talking with this lady. Remember, you woke up. It's a terrible day. And, you know, you're just thinking like, man, what a terrible day. But I got 20 minutes. I got 15 minutes. I can spare some time. And you know this lady opens up to you. And then you start speaking truth to her. And it was a divine appointment. You start telling her about Jesus Christ. She tells you, you know, why she's crying. And then you tell her, you know, the Lord. You tell her about Jesus Christ. And then, you know, you're 10 minutes later, you're like, well, you know, I don't have much time. You know, you're 10 minutes later after that. Hey, look, I got to go. But I want you to know I'm going to be praying for you. Who knows what impact you had on this person's life? And then you can carry on with your day. You get back home. Long night. You know, because you got to wrap things up, do whatever. And you barely get sleep the next day. But before you put your head down, you say a quick prayer. Like, Lord, you know, you start praying for this lady. Guy, lady, boy, girl, it doesn't matter, old person. And sometimes, you know, you have to repent because what you thought was a terrible day, you wake up in the morning, you're like, man, this is going to be a terrible day. You go to bed at night, and, you know, it started out terrible, but you know what? It turned out beautiful because of, you know, I was able to witness to this lady. I was able to witness to this guy. Lord, I was able to share your love with her, to share your love with this guy. And you pray for that individual. Nobody knows. It wasn't before... a audience of huge audience it wasn't you know you didn't have your phone so you can post on social media how awesome you are but no your audience is one the lord and he sees he hears he sees and it's so beautiful because you know i wonder you know when stuff like that happens for me personally when stuff like that happens and it's usually at the end of the day, you know, when I take inventory of the course of the day. And I send my prayers at night, you know, it's at the, at the end of the day. It mostly happens at the end of the day where you start to 
kind of take inventory of the happenings of the day. And then I start to think about the heavenly realm. Man, I was so angry this morning. I was so, you know, I was just on edge this morning. And you start to reflect on the heavenly realm. What kind of battle is happening in the heavenly realm? The battle against demons and angels. Then it kind of changes your perspective on things. So when you hear me say sometimes a person's divine appointment will come at your expense, remember that. When you make these sacrifices, when you wake up and have these terrible days, opportunity abounds. You say, opportunity for what? To share the good news. To preach Jesus and the good news. For your feet to be beautiful. You see, it's so beautiful when you start to think in terms of not just eternity, but in terms of reality. And I mean reality in the heavenly realm. This great battle of good versus evil. And you're a partaker in it. You have a role to play. I shouldn't even say it that way. You have a job to do. And so let's look what happens here. It's so interesting. Paul giving his, his uh, uh, testimony, the account of his life, how he used to come against the Christians. Remember, he's, uh, the accusations uh, from the Jews against Paul. And now he's, he's in a position where he's able to make a defense for himself. He says, look, the, the, my crime was believing in Jesus, having hope in Jesus. That's my crime, Agrippa. He says, look, I did it too, Agrippa. In verse 9, I myself thought that I must do these things contrary to the name of Jesus Christ. In verse 10, I also did it in Jerusalem. Many of the saints I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priests. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. That's how I voted. Kill them. These Christians, male, female, young, old, kill them. Crying lady, I don't care. Kill her. Because I'm a vessel of the law. And that is heresy. That is blasphemy. In accordance with the law. But you know what? He was blind to the law. Remember, he's a Pharisee of Pharisees. Look at what he says here in verse 11. He says in verse 11, And I punished them often in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme. You think like, whoa, he compelled them to blaspheme? I don't know how. If, you know, if the Christians were threatened, they weren't idle threats, that's for sure. Maybe they were beaten. You read these accounts about Paul and it's like, wow, he was a monster. He was a monster. Look what he did to the church. You could look at it at one side and say like, wow, he was such a monster. But you know what? Flip the coin over. Every coin has two sides. You flip it over and you know what I say? Behold the work of our Lord. Brother Paul, it is indeed hard to kick against the goats. What's so interesting, you see Paul before 
he became a Christian? How he's so easily compelled. How he says here, I compelled them to blaspheme. But now that he's a Christian, especially we're going to read in his letters, he says, I don't want to compel you guys to do anything. I don't want to compel you to do this. I don't want to lord over your faith. I'm going to teach you. I'm going to pray for you. I'm going to exhort you. I'm going to warn you. Sometimes I'm going to chastise you. But I'm not going to compel you to do anything. I don't even want your money. But I'm going to teach. I'm going to teach you scripture. To the best of my ability, I'm going to teach. You see, his refusal to compel the brethren. Refusal to compel. Because a day is coming and is here now as our Lord teaches. Where God's people will worship him in spirit and in truth. Where is compulsion? There is no room for compulsion. You look at the law. In the law, the Lord says, you know, those who want to make offerings, let them do it freely. Don't compel them. Let them do it freely. Because, you know, in spirit and in truth, it's freely. He doesn't create robots. And so look what happens here. He says in verse 11, And being exceedingly enraged against them. The way. Christians. Exceedingly enraged against them. He says, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. You know what's so beautiful about this? His witness. His testimony. And you think like, wow, what's beautiful about that? He killed Christians. I'm not saying that that's beautiful. But don't forget that he himself was also chased by Pharisees. He himself was also chased by religious leaders, stoned, left for dead. And I wonder if through his own testimony, if it helped him to be more compassionate to his accusers, to those who hated them, to those who hated the Christians, to those who hated Paul himself and who wanted him dead. Even the accusers right here before the council or the, the, the religious leaders, the Jews of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, even compassionate among them. I'm going to say something that's going to, it might sound abrasive. It might sound counterintuitive. But I'll say something about, about past error and past wickedness. And past corruption of the flesh and carnality. God can use it as a tool for compassion. He can use it as a tool for compassion. We talked about this a little bit on Wednesday. When the Lord says to the people, He says, remember that you guys were in Egypt too. When He tells them about the foreigner. Welcome the foreigner, because don't forget, you guys were foreigners in Egypt. Remember from where you came from, or remember where you came from. That's what I mean when I say your past errors, your past wickedness, no matter what it is. 
can help you be compassionate to those who are in that lifestyle. Have you ever been in Christian circles? And I mean hardcore Christian circles, like the remnants. You're this environment, it's like the remnant. And then somebody starts to say something about sin. And they say, oh, this sin is so terrible. Look, this guy's doing that. This lady's doing that. Oh, that's so disgusting. And indeed, it is disgusting. But let me ask you a question. How in the world will they know? How do they know? I weep at the thought of young kids being raised in ungodly homes. You know why? Because it's the sin perpetuates. You look at a sinful 10-year-old. How does he know? How does she know? Mom and dad don't know. How can they teach? They don't go to church. They don't read the Bible. How in the world can they know? This 10-year-old grows up, is 20 years old. The sin is more worse, more far-reaching, more impactful on himself, on herself, and those around him or her. But even still, how will he know? He's never been taught it, never had the foundation. She's never been taught it, never had the foundation. And I say this with the utmost amount of love. If you're going to talk about the wickedness of these individuals. I don't know how to say this nicely, but I want to say like, how dare you? And I don't mean that in a mean way. Don't forget from where you came from. And if you're in a situation where you realize that, oh my goodness, I've done that. Just, Lord, forgive me. And I don't mean to say that like in an abrasive way. But don't forget that the Lord is long-suffering. He is long-suffering. Old Testament, New Testament. Even today, even right now. He's long-suffering. He pulled you out of the trash. He had compassion on you. He has compassion on you. He pulled you out of the trash. He cleaned you up and He still cleans you up because He loves you. And you being a vessel of our Lord's goodness, you're not going to return that to another person who doesn't even know? Turn with me really quick to Romans 10. Romans 10. Look at Romans 10, 14. How then shall they call on Him in whom they have not believed? That's a hardcore question. Verse 13 says, Forever, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. He's like, wow, praise the Lord, that's beautiful. And indeed, it is beautiful. But it begs the question, 
even more so in these last days. How in the world shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? How? How is it going to happen? Um, if we're preoccupied on our high horses, it's like, oh man, look, this guy is so disgusting. Oh, this girl is so disgusting. Yeah, the sin is disgusting. I'm not, I'm not downplaying it. Whatever sin it is, a lot of sexual sin, a lot of drugs, a lot of alcohol, a lot of whatever, an abundance of the flesh. But how in the world will they know? You look at verse 13, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Wow, yes, Lord, let this happen. But even Brother Paul poses the question, how then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And he continues, how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And more questions, how shall they hear without a preacher? In verse 15, he continues, And how shall they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. You see? Of course, we want everyone in the world to call on the name of the Lord. But my question is, how will they even call on Him? When they don't even know Him. That's why this mentality of the Christian high horse is very dangerous. Very, very dangerous. And I don't mean to say it heavy-handedly. And I, before I said what I had to say, I said it was going to be abrasive. And I hope it wasn't overly abrasive to the point where I turned you off. It's just the opposite. My desire, my hope, my prayer is to turn you on to these truths. Get off your Christian high horse, my friend. Because we have fishing to do. There are souls who will burn in hell. And our Lord is long-suffering for them. The same way He was long-suffering for you. He's still long-suffering. Paul was not exempt from this. As we see in Acts 26, Paul was not, he himself says, look, I myself was against Jesus Christ, verse 9. Verse 10, myself, I also did it in Jerusalem. He says in, in, in verse 11, I, I punished them often in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme and being exceedingly enraged against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. He also chased them, the Christians. The Christians would run. Remember the diaspora that happened when Stephen was killed? When Stephen was stoned? And then the Christians just started to flee, just run. Why? Because they thought like, wow, that's going to happen to me too. And that was Paul's mission. That was Saul's mission. And then something happened. Brother Paul gives further account of his testimony in verse 12. While this 
while thus occupied, you know, kind of saying, like, Agrippa, this was my mission. I was on this, like, I was intent on killing the Christians, the people of the way. I was a monster. I was going to kill them. While thus occupied, as I journeyed to Damascus with authority and commission from the chief priest at midday, O king. Remember, he's speaking to Agrippa. Along the road, I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, shining around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we all had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice speaking to me and saying in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. That's a hardcore statement. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Now, there's a lot of people who say that, you know, boom, the Holy Spirit made, made uh, Paul a Christian right then and there. Boom. And I have to say a lot of uh, those of the Calvinistic persuasion, those of Reformed theology persuasion, which as a little side note, I call the Reformed theory because it's just a theory. Look, the Holy Spirit made Paul a Christian. Boom, it happened. The Holy Spirit compelled Paul. I don't see that. A choice was presented to this strict Pharisee of Pharisees. You say, like, what do you, it is hard for you to kick against the goads? That's a choice being presented to Paul? Yes. Remember, he's a Pharisee of Pharisees. And when you read the books of the law, the Pentateuch, the writings of Moses, who wrote about Jesus, you say, what do you mean he wrote about Jesus? He wrote about the law. Well, don't forget the Pharisees. They put their stake on the writings of Moses, the teachings of Moses, and Jesus Christ says, how can you believe the writings of Moses when Moses wrote about me? In Exodus 21, an ox who kills a person, there's a heavy response from the owner. It's death to the ox. And the Lord is presenting a choice to Paul. Paul, you want to be the ox? Don't forget, I'm the owner. And it is hard to kick against the goats. For a normal person, you hear it is hard for you to kick against the goads. Oh, what does that mean? I don't know what that means. So I'll just read on. To a Jewish person, it is hard for you to kick against the goads. Oh, you know, I get that. I remember the, my teachings in synagogue. To a Pharisee of Pharisees, it is hard for you to kick against the goads. Whoa. Message received, Lord. And then Paul had a choice to make. He said, like, what do you mean? Uh, presented a choice? Well, don't forget that Jesus says that Nineveh repented at the preaching of Jonah. That's from Matthew 12, verse 41. But you read the account in Jonah and this was the choice that was presented. This is uh, this preaching that Jonah did in Nineveh. This is what he said, quote, 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown, end quote. That's it. They had a choice to make at that point. 
when Jonah, as a messenger of the Lord, gave this message. Thus saith the Lord, Forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Immediately they're presented with a choice. And they repented. Nineveh. And that's what's so beautiful about the good, get the good news. When people are presented with a choice, the same way you were presented with a choice. Remember from where you came from. Because you too were a stranger in Egypt. I speak metaphorically, allegorically, metaphysically to those who have ears. And so in verse 15, Paul giving his testimony, this former monster. Wow, I'm so in love with Brother Paul. And you look at the work of his hands before Christ. It's like, whoa, Brother Paul. I can't believe it, Brother Paul. But how much more I love and adore Jesus Christ and the work of his hands. What a beautiful carpenter he is. What he can do. I'm not much of a woodworker at all. I can take two pieces of wood and nail them together. I can even get fancy and screw them in with the power drill. But I can't make fine cabinetry. I'll make a mess of things. But you know what? I knew I knew a carpenter. And he'll do it in your life, in your heart, in your mind. A renovation, a complete and total renovation. I don't care. You tell me, hey, look, you know, I've committed all this sexual stuff. I've committed all this drug stuff. I'm on my crack. I'm on my alcohol, whatever. Look, I don't care. Straight up, I don't care. What I do care about is your soul. Repent. Be born again. Believe in Jesus Christ. And then as our Lord told people, go and sin no more. He loves you. Look what happens here in verse 15. So I said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose. To make you a minister and a witness. Minister here is an assistant. You see minister, how it translates in other uh, 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 passages. But this word here, it's like an assistant. You know, when you look at the role of an assistant to who the assistant is tied to, there's a lot of correlation between the two. You see that, you know, Allah. Uh, Moses and Joshua and just like Jesus and Paul there is a close association but at the same time it's for a greater purpose and that's what the Lord is telling Paul I've appeared to you for this purpose to make you a minister and a witness. It's interesting here. Witness, it's, it's testify. It's to give testimony. But it also includes as a martyr. As a martyr. You know what's so interesting? How Peter, beautiful brother Peter, how he denied Jesus Christ. I mean, not that that's beautiful. But you see his humanity in that. 
And once he did deny Christ, you know, not just once, not just twice, not just three times. Me personally, I say four times. Because, you know, you see the biblical account, you know, first time, you know, I don't know the man. Second time, hey, I saw you with Jesus. No, that wasn't me. Third time, no, and he cussed. You read the biblical account and it's like, well, he cussed. You see his carnal nature is getting more and more and more. I don't know him as he walked, you know, he was like following Jesus at a distance. That's what happens when you don't close the gap between you and Jesus. What happens is you get more carnal, just like you see in Peter. You say, okay, I only counted three times. What's the fourth time? Well, he had to go away. He had to walk away. The chronological account, when you read the Gospels in chronological order, it says that as soon as the rooster crowed, Peter looked up and Jesus' eyes, they made eye contact. And he just denied the Lord three times, just as he was told would happen. And he denied, no, that's never going to happen. I will never deny you, Lord. And here he is denying Jesus Christ. You say, hey, that's three times. Okay, you know what the fourth time is? He makes eye contact with Jesus, and then he turns around and runs away. That's number four. And then what's so beautiful, not that he denied Christ, but that he came back to Christ. Somewhere along the road, he repented. He was made new again. He was reassured again. He was restored again. And when the Lord started to teach him about the manner in which he would die, he did not run away. He did not deny the Lord. The Lord revealed to him, you know, this is how you're going to die, Peter. You know, when you were young, you were free to go as you pleased. But as you get older, you're not going to be free to go as you please because men will bind you and take you away. And Peter wasn't like, oh, no, Lord, I'm going to deny you. No, he tasted the denial of the Lord, his own denial of the Lord. And he hated it. He tasted that bitterness. Never again, Lord. To the death, Lord. You see? And Peter didn't, you know. Historically, he was hung upside down. They were going to hang him on a cross like they did with Jesus. He says, I'm not worthy. Please hang me upside down. And what happens? They hold him upside down. That's so beautiful about these prophets and apostles. Killed. Martyred. You see in verse 16, I've appeared to you for this purpose to make you a minister and a witness both of the things which you have seen and of the things which I will reveal to you. Which, you know, of the things that you've seen and which I will reveal to you. So you see, real-time revelation. And we studied that a little bit more in passages past. Now there's real-time, you know, a lot of times people say, I get phone calls, you know, oh, you know, the Lord is calling me to, you know, Zimbabwe. And if you want to be a part of this, you'll give me a thousand dollars. It's like, wait a second, you know, is, is the Lord did the Lord call you to Zimbabwe? Yes. Where are you now? Los Angeles. You know, what in the world? <laughs> I thought you said the Lord called you to Zimbabwe. What are you doing here? Well, I can't go unless you know I have my health insurance. I can't go unless I have my travel expenses, my hotel expenses, my food, my room and board, clothes, uh, you know, until I, have my, I can fund my uh, 401k, you know, all these things. It's like, man, 
you know, a lot of people here stateside don't even have that name. If you're wondering, you know, we're in the United States, you know, I teach from the United States. A lot of people here don't even have those things. And all of a sudden you're saying that you can't go, the Lord called you to Zimbabwe? You know, I read the book of Acts and you see in real time the Lord providing and blessing His messengers. To talk to her brother, hey brother, the Lord called you to Zimbabwe? Go to Zimbabwe. The Lord is going to show you in real time how to trust in Him. If you, you're the one that told me, you know, the Lord is calling you to Zimbabwe. Now, if He's not calling you to Zimbabwe, don't go. Don't go there. But if He is, as you attest that He is, go. The Lord says it Himself. Look. You're going to testify of the things which, which you have seen and of the things which I revealed to you. Real-time revelation. And that's what happens to the messenger of Christ. Real-time revelation. Old Testament, New Testament. You see real-time revelation. Go here. Moses, turn left. Moses, don't stop. I know the water's there, but I didn't tell you to stop. Real-time revelation. Verse 17, I will deliver you from the Jewish people as well as, as well as from the Gentiles to whom I now send you to open their eyes. Now pause here for a moment. Pause here for a moment. You notice God, you know, the Lord is doing the work in Paul first and then the Lord does the work through Paul. You say, what do you mean? Verse 16, I have appeared to you for this purpose to make you. It's to Paul. God to Paul. And then in verse 18, to open their eyes. It's Paul to people. A lot of times people mix up that, this order of things. They say, wow, I'm going to go out and do this. I'm going to go out and do this. I'm going to go out and do this. Well, you know, slow your roll there. And I don't mean that in a negative sense. I mean that in the sense of it's hardcore spiritual warfare. You cannot be a novice in certain ministries. You cannot be a novice. Because don't forget that Satan's a fisherman too. You see a lot of people, they say, wow, you know what? I'm going to go and share the gospel with these crackheads. I'm going to go share the gospel with these prostitutes. And what happens? Because Satan's a fisherman too. Because this person is a novice. Because the Lord didn't call them in that ministry. Satan's a fisherman, and all of a sudden, they get sucked up into that lifestyle. They get caught up in the drug lifestyle. I'm going to go minister to crackheads, so now I'm a crackhead. I'm going to go minister to prostitutes, now I'm a prostitute. You see it happen all the time. No, you cannot be a novice. It's dangerous. I don't say that to hurt your feelings. I say that to build you up. To train you up, to equip you, and teach you so that in the Lord's time, you know, you can test the spirits. And then at the same time, you can learn to be a Berean. And then you'll be ready one day in the Lord's timing. And what's so beautiful about this is to understand that the Lord does the work in Paul first and then he does the work through Paul, the same way he does the work in Moses first and then does the work through Moses, the same way he does it with you. 
In verse 18, he says, to open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. Notice, dark to light, Satan to God. That's the objective for people to be right with the Lord. This is straight up New Testament. Just like the Old Testament, our study in Leviticus, the whole objective is for people to be right with the Lord. Old Testament, New Testament. To take a soul separated from the Lord and help that soul, shepherd that soul into Jesus Christ. To turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified. Set apart is how sanctified translates. Set apart, consecrated, and holy. Just as we read in Leviticus, the sanctification, the holiness, the uh, consecrated unto the Lord, hallowed unto the Lord. How? He says, red letters, by faith in me. You see how beautiful this is? Paul continues in his defense. Therefore, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. Paul is testifying to Agrippa. What could I do, King Agrippa? What could I do? I told you how I was raised in the law of Pharisee of Pharisees. It wasn't a secret. I told you that in the law, how I persecuted the people of the way. I told you how the Lord revealed himself to me. Saying, yes, it is hard for to kick against the goats. And then the Lord revealed to me that he wanted, you know, for this purpose. And this is my crime, King Agrippa. That I have this hope in Jesus. Agrippa, what was I supposed to do, King? What could I do? Be disobedient? No. How can I be disobedient? I refuse disobedience. Remember, he said to the... When, when the Christians, brothers and sisters in the Lord, when, when they told him, you know, don't go to Jerusalem. And Paul said in chapter 21, verse 13, what do you mean by weeping and breaking my heart, you guys? For I am ready... Not only to be bound, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. I'm ready to die. And Paul's saying that to the king here. King, how could I be, be disobedient to my Lord? And he says, he continues in verse 20. You know, the, you know I, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, verse 20, but declared first to those in Damascus and in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea and then to the Gentiles that they should repent, turn to God, and do works befitting of repentance. You see? To do works befitting of repentance. So what does this mean? The word here is metanoia, to do works befitting of Metanoia, it's compunction. I'll tell you what compunction means. It's a reversal of desire or a reversal of a decision. It's a moral compass that prevents a bad direction through 
obedience. I'll give you a carnal example. Say, for example, I'm chubby. You know, if you met me face to face, you'd be like, okay, that's not so difficult (laughs) to imagine. And say, for example, it's like, you know, I have a tub of ice cream. And, you know, I don't, you know, I want to eat the ice cream, but I also don't want to eat the ice cream. I want to eat the ice cream because it's delicious. It's tasty. But I also don't want to eat it because, you know, I've already finished three tubs and this is my fourth tub. It's compunction. It's that reversal of desire that says, no, I'm going to put this in the freezer and save it for another day. That's what compunction is. That's what metanoia is. That's what Paul is saying. To do works befitting of metanoia, compunction, befitting of reversal of desire, befitting of a moral compass that prevents a bad direction through obedience, befitting of a Christian. Listen, I know there's temptation everywhere. I know it. Look for the door. You must look for the way of escape. When you are tempted, not if you're tempted, when you are tempted, you must look for the door, the way of escape. And I say door specifically. You might even want to look for a capital D. (laughs) Look for that door. Satan's going to come at you and say, you know, dangle a carrot in front of your face. Whatever that carrot is, it might be drugs, it might be sex, it might be rock and roll, it might be alcohol, it might be whatever. Look for the door, the way of escape. You must. That's compunction. Not just look for the door, walk through the door. That's metanoia. It's a denial of desire, a denial of decision. Now, I have to say something about Reformed theory. Reformed theory says, oh, the Holy Spirit compels you. The Holy Spirit will make you do this. The Holy Spirit will prevent you from doing this. The Holy Spirit will, you know, if that were the case, then don't call him a helper. Do not call the Holy Spirit a helper if he's going to make you do something. No, Jesus Christ calls him the helper. Why? Because he'll help you. The Holy Spirit will help you. I don't mean to confront your theology. In one sense, maybe I'm saying, let us reason together. Let us pose these questions about our theology. Oh, but I was taught that, you know, that... uh, That the Holy Spirit will make me do this. The Holy Spirit will make me do that. Okay, if you're taught that, then don't call the Holy Spirit the helper. But Jesus Christ said he's the helper. I know. You know what that means? Get a new teacher. You're being taught crazy town. Oh, no, this guy is a learned guy. How can you say he's crazy town? Well, does he say it's okay to take the mark of the beast and still be saved? That's crazy town, my friend. That's dangerous in these last days. That's reformed theory. It's just a theory. Don't call it theology. It's just a theory. I don't mean to say that to cause you to falter. 
I say it to cause you to stand on two feet. Stand firmly on the rock of salvation. You know why? Because the storm, it's getting heavy. This is nothing. This is, I mean, you look at like a hurricane, you know, when it's just like, you know, Cat 5 hurricane. And then you look at when it's just arriving, it's like, okay, you can walk on the beach still. But within the next 20 minutes, you better get to safety because that storm is coming. And that's how it is now. Doctrinally, Remember, unless those days be shortened, no flesh will be saved, even the elect. It's getting crazy. It's like the first three and a half years is like the eye of the storm where there's calm. But it's only temporal. So let's look what happens here. You know, all these times we have choices to make. The Holy Spirit is indeed a helper. And what a beautiful helper he is. And the power of the Holy Spirit, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit inside of your temple. And you have choices to make. Look for the door. When you're tempted, look for the door. And go to the door. And take the door. And so look what happens here in verse 21. For these reasons, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. Therefore, having obtained help from God, to this day I stand. Witnessing both to small and great. Saying, no other things than those which the prophets and Moses said would come. That the Christ would suffer. That he would be the first to rise from the dead. Remember the first fruits of the resurrection. And would proclaim light to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. End quote. Wow. That's a long dissertation, Brother Paul. He started in verse 2, the you know, the opening quote. And here's the end quote here in verse 23. And then look what happens here. Now as he thus made his defense... Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are beside yourself. He's saying, Paul, you're out of your mind. Much learning is driving you mad. You know, I'll pose another interesting dichotomy to you today. When you know your Bible, when you know the scriptures, and your assertions cannot be refuted scripturally, you know what happens? People will hate you. Or they'll think you're crazy. They think you've lost your mind. And then, you know, whatever. They'll do whatever. But they'll think you're crazy. And you see that exemplified here with Festus. Paul, you're crazy. You're beside yourself. Much learning is driving you mad. Verse 25, but he said, I am not mad, most noble Festus. You see, notice Paul's composure here. I mean, notice Festus just called Paul crazy. What happens when people call you crazy? Do you fulfill their statement and become crazy? You know, I know a lot of people who they get easily offended, which is another sign of the last days. You know, uh, Matthew 11 uh, blessed is he who is not offended because of me. Also in Matthew 24, it's people being offended is a sign of the last days. And we live in a culture today where everybody's offended. Everybody's offended. I mean, put yourself in Paul's shoes right here in this moment. And if Festus says, hey, Paul, you're crazy. Or hey, whatever your name is, you're crazy. What are you going to do? I am not mad, most noble Festus. 
Are you going to exercise exercise self-control, which is a, a fruit of the Holy Spirit? Or are you going to fulfill Festus' statement and go crazy? A lot of people do that. You confront them, you know, with truth, and then somebody says something, and then all of a sudden they're triggered. They trigger a microaggression. How dare he call me crazy? How dare she call me crazy? Oh, you're, it's part of your, you know, you're part of the patriarchy. Crazy. People are crazy in these days. Very, very crazy in these last days. Another fulfillment, another sign of the last days. <laughs> the debased mind. I don't mean to laugh, but I mean, it's true. <laughs> and so look what happens here in verse 25. I'm not mad, most noble Festus, but speak the words of truth and reason. You know, reason here is interesting because it's the, a sound mind, mentally sober and with self-control. That's a holy mixture, mixture what we see here. Reason, but truth as well. Have you ever seen people, it's like, yeah, you know, you're saying biblical truths, but you're also crazy, you know? That, that's not how the equation works. You know, yes, this verse is true. Yes, this other verse is true. Yes, this other verse is true. But you're trying to put it together, and it's, it doesn't work that way. Because when you read the text, context, and co-text, which you must do as a Berean, text, context, and co-text. Those, that's the three parameters for sound doctrine. Never, ever forget that. Text, context, and co-text. And people say, oh yeah, let's look at this verse. This verse says this. They'll say, okay, let's flip to this book. And this verse says this. They'll flip to another book. This verse says this. Therefore, and they try to piece it together. No, that's crazy town. You can't get text, context, and co-text. You can get your text. But you cannot get what the Holy Spirit is trying to say through the Word of God. And so look what happens here. In verse 26, For the king before whom I speak freely knows these things, for I am convinced that none of these things escapes his attention since this thing was not done in a corner. You know, he's speaking to Governor Festus, but don't forget, uh, Agrippa's right there. And he's acknowledging to Agrippa, look, this wasn't hidden in your kingdom, in your domain. You know Christians. You know of the way. You know of our master, Jesus Christ. There was a tremendous impact among the Herodian family and vice versa. And Paul says, I'm convinced that none of these, none of these things escapes his attention since this thing was done not in a corner. Since this was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you do believe. This is an amazing verse. Do you believe the prophets, King Agrippa? I know that you do believe. What a beautiful fisherman brother Paul is. Telling Agrippa, Agrippa, I know you align with the Jews from a, a political perspective. You've heard of the, you know, the pharisaical uh, 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 arguments about the resurrection. Those of the Sadducees as well. You know these things. 
as a ruler of your domain, your political connections with the Jewish people? Do you believe they're prophets? You align with these leaders? Let's go deeper into their law, Agrippa. You say, what do you mean let's go deeper into the law? And all of a sudden say, Agrippa, listen. Listen closely, Agrippa. Can you hear the law? Do you hear it? What a beautiful, wise fisherman we see in Brother Paul. Then Agrippa said to Paul, You almost persuade me to become a Christian. Whoa. You see here? Remember, in here we are in verse 28, you know, in closing. But don't forget where we opened up. Not You say in verse 1, but I meant like the stage here in this great hall of justice, so to speak. Remember the pomp and circumstance of King Agrippa and Bernice, their entrance. Don't forget that, you know, that he's in his uh, uh, incestuous marriage. Look at the history of the Herodian family, the wickedness. Don't forget, in that family, John the Baptist was beheaded. And then all of a sudden, this Agrippa is saying to Paul, Paul, you almost persuade me to become a Christian. I'll say something about this. I don't know. I have a hope in the innermost parts of my heart, in my marrow. I have a hope that in the marriage supper, as everybody's eating, I'm going to be a butterfly. And I'm going to be going to everybody. Hey, you know, oh, Lydia, I love you. You know, Paul, I love you. you know, uh, uh, little Timothy, I love you. And then he's going to stand up with this big buff guy. Whoa, I thought you were little Timmy. <laughs> and then I'm like, who's that guy over there? That's Agrippa. Now, I'm not saying that Agrippa became a Christian. I don't know. But I have a hope in my heart of hearts. Man, I hope he did. But when you read the writings of Josephus, the history books, there's really no account. It kind of fizzles off after the war with Rome. I mean, you know, understandably so. But I don't know what his decision was with Jesus Christ. But I can hope. I hope to see him there. Yeah, I know he was in incestuous marriage. Yeah, I know his family has a lot of wickedness. And I'm not making an excuse for those things. But I read passages like this, and I like to have a hope. Wow, Lord, it would be so cool if he became a Christian, if he separated from Bernice in that incestuous marriage that didn't honor you, that he got right with you, that Bernice got right with you. And I don't know how they're going to work out their relationship. I don't know the extent of that, but you know what, Lord, I hope that they honored you. But here you see the very, very beginning of Planting seeds very skillfully in chapter one here, very the utmost skill. I mean, if I was more carnal, I'd say like, wow, Paul would be a killer salesman if I was more carnal. But no, he was employed by Jesus Christ. Little seeds, planting these little seeds from verse one, little seeds and buttressed by his witness, buttressed by his, you know, two years in captivity. 
his countenance. And you see Herod's entrance, the host of carnality that included everything. But then you see his exit. And that's what we're going to see here. We're going to see the closing here, his exit of 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 uh, Herod, uh, of Agrippa, Herod Agrippa. So when I say Herod and Agrippa, it's the same. Just, you know, the Herod, Herod is a family. And I say that as encouragement to you. Because we live in very, very dark days. And you're going to be confronted with all kinds of different people. All kinds of sex, drugs, rock and roll, all kinds. And rather than get on a high horse and say like, wow, this is so disgusting. I don't want anything to do with you. I mean, depending on the scope of, you know, there might come a time when you say like, no, this is it. I tried once, I tried twice, but no more. But as you reflect on your own history in Egypt and how the Lord pulled you out of Egypt, and you conf- you're confronted with a person that has, say, all kinds of different sexual sin, all kinds of different drug sin, all kinds of different alcohol sin, whatever it is. How are they to know? You want them to be righteous. You want them to call on the name of the Lord. But how will they know? Unless you tell them. That's why I take notice of Herod's entrance and his exit. You say, what do you mean? Well, his entrance is his encounter with Paul. And we're about to see his exit where the two separate now. And he's not the same. He even said, but out of his own mouth, Paul, you almost persuade me to be a Christian. People are going to have an entry point with you. Don't let them leave the same way. Is Agrippa a Christian? I don't know. I hope, but I don't know. And we're surrounded by all kinds of wickedness as the world gets darker and darker and darker. You're going to have these encounters with people. And as you do, these entry points, these moments of discussion, these moments of you know contact, don't let them be the same. Don't let them leave the same. They might hate you. They might call you crazy. Look at the difference between Festus and Agrippa. Festus says, Paul, you're crazy. Much learning is driving you mad. But Agrippa is saying, you almost persuade me to be a Christian. There's that dichotomy there. Be a fisherman. A wise, wise, wise fisherman. So look what happens here. In verse 29, in closing, and Paul said, you know, Agrippa said, you almost persuade me to be a Christian. Verse 29, and Paul said, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me today might become both almost and altogether such as I am, except for these chains. (laughs) Sense of humor, Paul. You see? Remember all the pomp and circumstance, everybody decked out to the nines, you know, fancy clothes, the clothings of royalty. You know, I don't know what kind of gems, gemstones, pearls, I don't know. But I bet you it was pretty fancy. 
more fancy than Paul's attire. Agrippa says, you almost persuade me to become a Christian. Paul says, not just that, Agrippa, but everybody here, and not just almost a Christian, but everybody such as I am. And his little sense of humor, well, except for these chains. Exclude the chains. You know what I love about this? And I want you to remember this and bind this on your hearts. Bind this to your mind. Godly countenance. Use it as a tool. You say, what do you mean? How, how do I use it as a tool? Well, when I say godly countenance, remember when I read in from uh, uh, Galatians 5, the, the, the fruit of the Spirit, which is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such, there is no law. Well, these are the fruit of the Spirit and godly attributes. And you can use them as a tool. Imagine for a moment, I'm not suggesting heresy. It's going to sound like I'm heretical in saying this. But imagine if Paul was a rebel rouser. If Paul, you know, before he went to Jerusalem, he started to organize. Hey, Christians, let's do this. You know, bring your bats, bring your sticks, bring your, your pitchforks. Because we're going to attack. This is an injustice upon the Christians. This is an injustice happening here in Jerusalem. And we're going to fight back to arms. What if he were a rebel rouser? They would have killed him. So, oh, yeah, but you know what? Yeah, he's going out. You know, he's, he's awesome. He's a patriot. And I'm not trying to deny patriotism in whatever nation you come from, you emanate from. I'm in the United States. And I admire, I have great adoration for the patriots of old. I'm not denying the sacrifice of patriots. But what I am saying is that this world is not your home. We are citizens of heaven. If you're a Christian, we are citizens of heaven. Let your stand be for the kingdom. Let your stand be for Jesus Christ. And use this godly countenance as a tool because you know you could be a rebel rouser or you can be peaceful as doves you can be as peaceful as a dove and yet wise as a serpent because even king agrippa says you almost persuade me to become a christian whoa in the herodian family do you know how hardcore that is of the family of Herod, one of them might be a Christian. You almost persuade me, Paul. Peaceful as a dove, peaceful as doves, and wise as serpents. That's the Christian in these last days. And so look what happens here in closing. When he had said these things, Verse 30, the king stood up as well as the governor and Bernice and those who sat with them. And when they had gone aside, they talked among themselves saying, this man is, is doing nothing deserving of death or chains. That's other these leaders, prominent men of the city. Agrippa, Bernice, uh, Festus, he's innocent. 
the accusations against him, it's a conspiracy. It's all a hoax. Nothing deserving of death or chains. Then Agrippa said to Festus, This man might have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. Now you look at that. Man, Paul, you could have been free. Ah, oh, too bad you appealed to Caesar. No, you can't look at it that way. Man, Paul, it's such a bummer that you have to go to, uh, you appeal to Caesar. You could have been set free. Everybody wants freedom, right? But I'll tell you something. There is nothing more free than a clear conscience and a clean conscience before God and man. Nothing more freeing than that. If you don't know what I'm talking about, you know, listen to our studies from, you know, a couple chapters ago. You'll see what I mean. There's nothing more free and more liberating than a clear conscience before the Lord. And no period. Before the Lord and before man. Then you'll have freedom. And it's freedom in Christ. Don't forget also in chapter 23. Turn really quick to chapter 23. You say, oh, bummer, Paul, you appealed to Caesar. You could have been a free man. But don't forget when Paul was all by himself, presumably in the barracks in Jerusalem, in verse 11 of Acts 23, the following night the Lord stood by him. He wasn't alone. You know, carnally speaking, oh, Paul's all by himself in the barracks. But no, Paul's not by himself. This is what the Lord says to him. Be of good cheer, Paul. For as you have testified for me in Jerusalem, so you must also bear witness at Rome. Wow. So, you know, in closing, in chapter 26, verse 32, when Agrippa says, this man might have been set free if he had not been appealed to Caesar. You look at that, oh, what a bummer. Paul could be a free man. No, he's obedient to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. The Lord says, Paul, we're going to Rome. Paul says, okay, let's go to Rome. You see, obedience. It's so beautiful. And several years from this point, in obedience to the Lord, Paul gets beheaded. He gets his head chopped off for the name of Jesus Christ. And beautiful in the eyes of the Lord is the death of his saints. We're going to end our study here and pick up in chapter 7, Lord willing, next week. God bless you guys. Love you guys.